Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, Theresa May's Brexit deal is in peril once again. Uh, well, look, I'm, I can't reveal the discussions. These are private and confidential discussions. But we are into the meat of the matter now. Both sides have exchanged robust, strong views. And we're now facing the, the real discussions. Talks will be resuming soon. Labour's painful problems get worse. I do not intervene in cases. My office does not intervene in cases. We have a robust system in the party. And I'm determined to make sure that system works, that it is independent of me and my office, that if somebody has suffered any kind of abuse, anti-Semitic abuse or any other abuse, it is dealt with through our rule book by our policies and their individual cases have a right to appeal to the National Constitutional Committee of the Party. There is no space for racism in any form within our society. There is absolutely no space anywhere for anti-Semitism in our society. And we celebrate women in politics. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Also with us is Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. And also with us today is the Labour MP for Leeds West and Chair of the Business Select Committee, Rachel Reeves. Good afternoon. Hi Rachel. Um, we've got two Rachels on today, which uh, I've been panicking about all morning. So <laughs> um, I'm going to refer to you. Rachel Wearmouth as Rachel Wearmouth and you, Rachel Reeves, as Rachel Reeves. So that Probably the right way around. Yeah. <laughs> who's talking. Uh, and yeah, let's carry on. Um, so it's been a bit of a quiet week for Brexit news, but things are heating up ahead of next week's second meaningful vote on Theresa May's deal. Um, here's loyal Tory MP Simon Hoare urging colleagues to back the deal in the spirit of Lent. This is the start of Lent, traditionally a time of abstinence and giving things up. Recently, it's become a season of doing something new and positive. Would my right honourable friend agree with me that it would do our national soul some good if we all took up voting with the government <laughs> to leave the EU with her good deal and in an orderly fashion on the 29th of March? Um, Paul, it's not looking good for Theresa May and her deal again. Well, the problem is that... We've been told by the EU only today that the government have got 48 hours to sort of come back with some kind of proper proposal about um, a, sort of a revised Brexit deal. And that all the expectation is that actually it's going to be on Monday when Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, suddenly produces this form of words that the government think is going to get them over the line. Um, and that bit of legal advice is going to be the most hotly anticipated bit of Attorney General's legal advice since the Iraq war. I mean, you know, it's, it, everything seems to be resting on it. And yet, actually... Really, will that form of words amount to much? So far, a lot of Brexiteers are really deeply unconvinced. Uh, and as it stands, a lot I think, the, well, there'll be some, some people peeling off, but actually as it stands, it looks like she's going to lose on Tuesday. Uh, and Geoffrey Cox has run into a bit of um, difficulty in Brussels as well this week. Do you think that's a bit of um, 
I don't know if that's expectation management or not. On both, it's in both sides' interest to say, look, things are really rocky, and then on Monday suddenly to pull some rabbit out of the hat and make it look better. You never know. Although, the, to be honest, the language from Brussels and from Number Ten was pretty dire yesterday. So maybe things really are genuinely in trouble, um, and they haven't got enough to get them over that line. Rachel Reeves, how do you see where we're at at the moment? Well, I mean, the Conservative Party are totally divided on this and the government went down to such a huge defeat last time. I don't see enough of her Conservative colleagues having changed their mind between the last meaningful vote and this meaningful vote. And so then the next two days are crucial after that. For on Wednesday, we should have the opportunity to vote on whether we want to leave without a deal. I think, as Philip Hammond said on the radio this morning, the the will of Parliament would be that we must not leave without a deal, in which case we come to Thursday and the vote on whether to extend Article 50. If we don't want to leave without a deal, there's no choice but to extend Article 50. So that's how I see things going next week as it stands at the moment. And what would what do you think we should do with a delay to Brexit? You know, with the extra time, what, what would you like to see happen in that extra time? Well, I think it's clear that the EU don't want to extend Article 50 just to have more of the same conversations that they've been having for the last two years. The French were very clear about that this morning as well, that if there's nothing new to say, there's not much point in having an extension. There are discussions clearly um, ongoing between parliamentarians about whether you could have some softer form of Brexit with the UK remaining in the customs union, for example, which would uh, help but not totally get around some of the issues of the backstop. Uh, I think you'd also need to actually to be in the single market to, to really deal with those uh, those issues. So that would be a Norway plus Norway in the single market but not in the customs union, a Norway plus sort of arrangement. Obviously, uh, hard Brexiteers are not going to sign up Uh, to that unless they think that they would be able to reform that in the future and move to a Brexit that they're more comfortable with. My personal view is that we should uh, have a referendum on whatever deal Parliament can pass and put that to the country and say, you voted for Brexit. This is the Brexit deal that has been negotiated on your behalf. Do you want to go ahead with that deal or do you want to stay with the deal that we've got at the moment with the European Union? Um, Paul, a lot of what Rachel said there um, kind of cut into the debate going on in the Labour Party at the moment and um, in the Labour leadership, actually, and, and the Shadow Cabinet. Could you... Yeah, well, what was interesting was Jeremy Corbyn meeting Oliver Letwin, of all people, yesterday, you know, the guy who was the architect of the poll tax under Margaret Thatcher, meeting Jeremy Corbyn. It's quite an event, isn't it? I mean, in the same room. And what I heard was that, actually, Jeremy Corbyn had taken a great interest in this common market 2.0 this this idea he'd read the pamphlet from cover to cover he'd asked engaged questions detailed questions about the ver- you know the merits of an EFTA court versus an ECJ court not the image you've got of Jeremy Corbyn about being Mr Detail when normally he's big picture and and it, the people in the room said to me actually he genuinely looked as though he really really wanted to make some sort of compromise to get there and what's interesting about what Rachel just said is that it sounds like Rachel Obviously, your preferred choice is people to vote, but you could, under some circumstances, possibly go for some kind of customs unions or, pl- or some kind of Norway-style thing. We don't know how it looks, but something in that territory. I wouldn't um, rule out supporting it, but I do have some misgivings. I think when people voted to leave the European Union, they didn't vote for some sort of customs union, single market, sticking with free movement. It seems to me that you keep the things in the European Union that people didn't like, 
but you lose the positive. So right. at least at the moment, we get a say over the laws that the European Union makes. We wouldn't have the say over those if we were in EFTA uh, because they don't have a vote. So we'd have to sign up to all the European rules, including all the rules of the single market, including a freedom of movement. And so we would have left the European Union, but sort of only in name. Now, I'm a Remainer, so I'm keen to stay as close to the European Union as possible. But I, I do think that it's maybe not so easy to make the democratic case for that than it would be to say, let's have a referendum. If I'd be more keen to say, OK, you've got Norway plus, if we can negotiate something like that, and then put that to the people. Would you rather right. a Norway plus model or, or what we have at the moment? Yeah. I think that's a fair thing because... We seem to have deviated so far from what anyone thought they were voting for. Some people thought they were voting for £350 million extra a week for the NHS. Some people thought they were voting to leave um, um, a free trade area. Some people thought they were voting to get rid of freedom of movement. Some people thought they were voting because they hated David Cameron and wanted to vote against whatever he believed in. And we've moved so far from what people were voting for in June 2016 I believe that the right thing is to go back to the people and say, you voted for this, we respect the result of that referendum, we've negotiated in good faith uh, for a, a deal what we think is in our country's best interest. Do you still want to go ahead with it or do you prefer the deal we've got on the table at the moment? Do you think one of the things that politicians really have not talked about in the last few months is, is immigration? And that probably was the biggest deciding factor in the referendum result. I mean, if there's going to be some kind of agreement around mm common market you would have to start to talk about immigration and free movement so in my constituency which voted to leave the european union the biggest issue pretty much the only issue that was mentioned on the doorstep was freedom of movement that was the the overriding reason i can't speak for the country as a whole but from my impression that freedom of movement was the biggest issue in that referendum it certainly was in leeds west however things change in politics all the time and certainly when I'm out campaigning now or when I'm looking at what I'm getting in um, in you know, casework or comments on social media, immigration just seems to have fallen away as an issue compared to where we were in 2016. Now, maybe it would re-emerge if people thought that leaving the European Union was going to mean still keeping freedom of movement or that we weren't going to leave the European Union. But in part because... EU migration has fallen over the last uh, two and a half years and partly because frankly there's more important things going on at the moment in the world and in the UK that immigration has fallen back uh, as an issue a bit which is one of the reasons why also you see support for remaining in the European Union uh, increasing which it has done significantly since the uh, referendum in 2016. Rachel how do you get around the problem of the manifestos of both parties? I mean both parties said it's not just about whether they respect the referendum. Both parties said um, freedom movement will end, and the Tories said it really clearly. Is the problem for the Tories, not so much just for you guys, but for the Tory MPs, if May does say, look, we want a customs union or some kind of Norway model, she's going to have to say, look, I'm really sorry, we're going to have to tear up that manifesto pledge to end freedom of movement. And parties that tear up manifesto pledges that are really big ones, like the Lib Dems found out on tuition fees, really pay for it, don't they, in the end? I think that's a good reason to go back to the country, 
because you're right that the deal that the Prime Minister's put forward and also a Norway Plus model are very different from what people thought they were voting for in 2016 and probably, as you say, Paul, in 2017. Isn't that a good reason to go back to the people? I don't think anybody, whether you voted Remain or Leave, believed that the negotiations were going to be as difficult as they are. Now, I don't think that's because Europe has made it difficult for, uh, for us. I think it's because those decades of integration that you've seen are very hard to unwind. And the European Union, for you know, quite obvious and fair reasons, in my view, don't want to separate out the pillars of the single market. And as a result, we're having to make some quite stark choices. Do we want to um, respect the will of the people uh, in terms of immigration? Or do we want to protect our jobs and investment that working people rely on to, to pay the bills and, uh, and, and, and provide employment in our communities? And so it is a it is a real challenge. I think that um, in the end, we should, as politicians, look at the evidence and do what we think is the right thing uh, to do in the national interest. I think that's what we were elected for, and that is why you have a representative uh, democracy. But I think it's also a good reason, Paul, for why we should go back to the people and ask them whether this is what they were voting for in 2016. But to get to that, just finally, to get to that that whole idea of a referendum, second referendum, people's vote, um, to get there, you've got to get it through Parliament. Do you think actually tactically this could be something of a mistake if the Peter Kyle amendment is put next week? It might be too soon if you vote on that on Tuesday before May's deal. In other words, it, it currently looks like it hasn't got the numbers. It will be defeated. And then you get all the everyone else saying, well, actually, we've tried that. We're not going to do it again. And let's move on to the other options like um, Common Market. Well, the do Prime Minister the tried to have a meaningful vote yeah. on her deal uh, once and she's coming back again. Do so you think you can do it I again? Think, I don't see why you, um, why you wouldn't be able to. The Prime right. Minister is bringing back a vote which she had the most spectacular defeat for right. uh, just a, a, a few weeks ago. And I think that probably it is incumbent on MPs to put down what they believe should happen now because we are when we vote on Tuesday uh, just two and a half weeks away so you say is it too soon (laughs) it could also make the case that it's a bit too late true the interesting thing about the Kyle amendment was that Kyle Wilson Phil Wilson Wilson gets very upset (laughs) 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 I wouldn't be able to go into the tea room and face (laughs) Phil Wilson unless I had (laughs) made the case that it is the Kyle Wilson we've talked about Kyle Wilson on this podcast before we've concluded that he is the six backstreet boy yeah uh, he's he's the missing pop star Liverpool right back I heard the other day from the Labour aid Anyway, that amendment, the, the key part of that amendment originally was that it backed Theresa May's deal on the condition of getting a people's vote, but the Labour leadership have been pretty clear that they won't back it if it means backing Theresa May's deal. So I was just wondering, how could you rework that? How would it work? Would it just be a straight up and down people's vote amendment? I mean, there will be a number of amendments. I'm sure there will be a straight up and down people's vote amendment tabled next week probably by either the Liberal Democrats or the independent group. So that's going to be on the table as well. I think the clever thing about um, Peter Carls and Phil Wilson's amendment is that they're trying to give the Prime Minister um, a way out of this. So we can get through your deal, Prime Minister, but then you've got to have the confidence to take your deal that you've negotiated to the people. I think it's interesting. I think the wording is going to be fascinating. There is this suggestion that it could say, this House withhold support from the Prime Minister's deal unless, rather than this House endorses the Prime Minister's deal 
as, as long as. So it's about the wording, and it starts with Geoffrey Cox. You know, everything in politics, unfortunately, right now, comes down to bloody words, you know, rather than policies or ideas. But actually comes down to the integrity of what that legalistic wording is going to be in that amendment, and it will be interesting. Now, if Cox's codpiece goes down and the deal falls next week, we're likely to see the publication of the government's proposed tariffs um, for a no-deal Brexit scenario. Um, that will have huge implications if they ever come in. Um, you've been asking number 10 about it this morning, I believe, Rachel. Yes, um, they are steering away from telling us exactly when they're going to publish their proposals for, for tariffs in the event of an ordeal. But uh, we're hearing that there could be huge slashing of tariffs in certain departments, um, um, particularly areas like steel. And they're talking about um, uh, sort of separating off areas like ceramics or car components to assuage some some concerns about those areas. I mean, there are some tariffs where slashing them is relatively benign, like, I mean, we're never going to have a British orange farm. <laughs> um, but there, there are a lot of concerns around, among trade unions as to how this might work out. I think the timing of it might be really interesting, because if she loses that meaningful vote and we start to think about the possible reality of a no deal, that would focus a lot of Labour MPs' mind if industry was thought to be at risk so we might have more MPs like Jim Fitzpatrick who are willing to support May's deal in the long term is that that what you think Rachel? Well I think that um, on the tariffs thing you know the Jacob Rees-Mogg view and I think Liam Fox view that we should unilaterally reduce tariffs is a disaster for British industry and the trade unions are absolutely right to oppose it and business um, oppose it as, as well and uh, in um, in farming and agriculture for example we've heard you know Minette Batters uh, president of the National Farmers Union as well as Tim Roach from the, the GMB and Francis uh, O'Grady from the TUC talk about the devastating impact it will have on on British industry if unilaterally we decided to allow cheap imports in from around the world without any protection for, for, for British industry. Now, the reason that you need some sort of protection is that we have, we have much higher labour standards, we have much higher environmental um, standards. So, of course, it is cheaper to produce some things in the rest of the world. But the reason we have those high labour and environmental standards is because we believe it is the right thing to do for the planet and people. And if we said, oh, well, we we don't mind if you know you treat workers or degrade the environment in other countries uh, and undercut British workers and uh, and British goods. It just doesn't seem the right way forward at all. And also, trade negotiations are usually just that they are a negotiation. If we were to unilaterally cut tariffs and and make it easier for um, um, for other countries to to export goods to the UK, what incentive would those countries then have to cut tariffs? and regulations on British exports, often of services, they wouldn't have those incentives if we had already unilaterally cut the tariffs on the goods that they are exporting to us. So economically and socially and environmentally, it is a bonkers idea. And certainly when people in Stoke and in Sunderland voted to leave the European Union, they did not vote to leave the European Union to be awash with cheap imports from the rest of the world. I think it would be an absolute betrayal of the people who voted leave if the government were to go ahead and unilaterally slash tariffs in that way. Great, let's move on. Um, now, things have gone from bad to worse this week for Labour. Um, with the Equality Watchdog's announcement today that the party is facing a formal investigation into anti-Semitism. Um, we're now going to hear from Labour MP Margaret Hodge, 
um, claiming Jeremy Corbyn steps in to protect allies accused of anti-Semitism. Jeremy always proclaims zero tolerance of anti-Semitism. When it comes to the actual cases, if they're his mates, he doesn't demonstrate zero tolerance. And the other thing, he claims no political interference in um, in, in these cases. There is, we have, I've now seen so much evidence, there is definitely political interference. So trust in him has gone. And actually, misleading me or himself being misled is really uh, undermines my trust for him. Um, there's been a lot going on this week in the Labour Party, Paul. Um, can you summarise what's been happening? Well, um, it's been a long week, certainly, when it comes to anti-Semitism. Um, on Monday at the Parliamentary Labour Party meeting, were you there, Rachel? Uh, I missed that, uh, that, that delight. That delight, yeah. yeah. Um, I had the delight of, um, or the pleasure of being outside that meeting. and um, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Probably better than being inside it, but also. Yeah, that's true. Um, You're used to that, I think. Often you can hear what's happening because people are shouting, with people like John Mann in particular. Mainly so that you can hear, I yeah, think, Yeah, uh, deliberately. Um, now, what happened there was, obviously, this, this whole issue came up again, particularly about whether or not um, the, the, the party and the leadership are in sync on the whole idea of, of, of anti-Semitism as much as they are with as much as the PLP are. And it's what we talked about last week, which is this whole concept. If you've got the sort of Jeremy Corbyn view of the Labour Party and a political membership, you think membership is, is almost like, you know, a, a, a human right. And you go down a, a legal route to defend it if someone thinks you should be suspended for whatever reason. Um, but I think what we've seen this week as well is that actually Charlie Faulkner, uh, who's the who's the proposed new surveillance commissioner on anti-Semitism. He's suggesting that actually he could take up this new job. He's obviously a lawyer, no question about that, with an extensive legal background, former Lord Chancellor, well qualified in the law, you might say. And he's suggesting that he might want some kind of independent solicitors to come in and look again at the way Labour's process is working. I think the problem with that for a lot of people is that ultimately it's not a question of the law, it's a question of politics, political judgment. And that's why I think a lot of Labour MPs got very upset this week when they found out, and there was lots of email evidence, but also on Wednesday at the Parliamentary Committee, the backbench group for the PLP, were told by um, Jenny Formby's office, the General Secretary, that actually someone from the leader's office was going to be acting head of complaints. Now that job is someone who's a sort of ombudsman, or sort of like a, 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 like a, a legal friend for someone who makes a complaint on their side, putting their case and then helping them construct that case to the party. And then it goes to the party for investigation within its whole internal staff uh, investigations unit. And so the very idea that someone in the leader's office could be there to represent complainants who and somebody who might actually in the past have tried to excuse, not excuse anti-Semitism, but try to find other ways than suspension for dealing with it put up a, a lot of uh, backs of the Labour Party MPs this week. Now, I think the real difficulty there is, I don't think there's any problem with the leader's office getting involved or interfering with anti-Semitism cases and cases of suspension because it's actually, the, you know, it's the party's image. Has the party been brought into disrepute? Why shouldn't the leader's office be involved? You know, Ed Miliband, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown would often be consulted about suspensions if it meant that the party's image was being undermined. They wouldn't obviously be involved in the detailed process of the complaint and everything like that. When it comes to suspensions, what we saw this week were people saying, actually, we think this person should be suspended or cause the party a lot of damage if they're not. And people in the leaders office saying, actually, well, there are various reasons for what they did. And I think that's what it comes down to. Jeremy Corbyn has, has, has on the one hand, said, well, we shouldn't have leaders' offices ever being involved. We've got a new system. 
But I, I personally think, why not just own it? In other words, if you think actually the processes should be more fair, own it and say, yeah, as leader, I think actually automatic suspension shouldn't work. Uh, but equally, if you're of a different view, as a lot of the PLP are, which is, and they do own it, they say, yeah, you should be instantly suspended and then there should be an investigation. What's wrong with owning that? I think actually treating it as a political issue rather than just a legalistic one is where actually it's been going wrong. Um, Rachel Reeves, is it difficult being a Labour MP right now? Well, of course, the issues of anti-Semitism have rocked the Labour Party and they're a source of great shame for the party. Uh, the uh, Jewish Labour movement have been affiliated to the Labour Party for almost uh, 100 years. Clement Attlee and Harold Wilson were strong supporters of the Jewish community and also of Israel. And so it is very sad to see what's happening in the Labour Party. And uh, as I've said before, I would just urge the leadership to get a grip of this problem, to suspend people who... Uh, uh, have gone against the values of the Labour Party and the, the values that Jeremy Corbyn speaks of, including um, that Labour is an anti-racist party, because at the moment we are not meeting up to the high ideals that we set ourselves as a, as a Labour Party, and we should hold ourselves to high standards. We're a party built and created to fight for equality. We're a party that believes in solidarity, and we're not at the moment showing the solidarity that we should show with the Jewish community. That's a source of great shame, and we need to sort it out. We need to have sorted it out well before now, but I would just urge the leadership again to to do everything they can to root out anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. There is, no, uh, there is no place for it in our party and we need to be much clearer uh, about that and that means suspending people, expelling people uh, and never allowing them back into our party to pollute it. Do you think that that's one option actually because in the past people have said that there shouldn't be such a thing as a lifetime ban. Do you think Why actually, not? Yeah. Why you not? Really you know, happen? if somebody is an anti-Semite uh, and they, you know, persistently... Um, are anti-Semitic in what they uh, share on social media or what they say at party meetings, why shouldn't that person be kicked out? You haven't got a right to be a member of the Labour Party. Uh, and we don't want people like that in the Labour Party. We don't want racists in the Labour Party, and they should be kicked out, and they should be kicked out for good. And Leeds has obviously got a sizable Jewish population. Have you seen locally the sort of impact on the party's reputation? I don't in my constituency have a large Jewish community, but uh, in Fabian, Fabian Hamilton's constituency of Leeds North East and to a certain extent in Alex Sobel's constituency of, of uh, Leeds North West, uh, and of course Alex has spoken out very strongly against anti-Semitism, but certainly in, in those parts of the cities and when, I, when I've been to um, uh, uh, Jewish uh, events in, in Leeds as a, an MP, uh, you know, there is a lot of anger, a lot of real anger, confusion, about how this could have happened and frustration that it's not being dealt with and I share those concerns and I stand in solidarity with the Jewish community in Leeds and across the country who want this sorted out. I actually grew up in a Jewish area in Leeds, in Leeds North East um, and you know a lot of my friends from, from, from those days just don't think Labour can sort this problem out while Jeremy Corbyn is leader. I mean it's been going on for you know as long as Brexit right now. I mean, what do you make of that, Rachel? Well, I think that Jeremy Corbyn has to take responsibility for this because it's happened under his watch and, you know, the clue is in the name, leader. Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the Labour Party and he needs to lead us 
out of this mess and into a place where Jewish people feel comfortable in the Labour Party and proud to be in the Labour Party. And at the moment, you know, if you talk to my Jewish colleagues in, in Parliament, they find it very difficult to reconcile their Judaism with the Labour Party membership, and that is a terrible, terrible thing. And Charlie Faulkner, do you think that could be the solution, his new job, or do you think I've got a lot of respect, a lot of respect for Charlie um, Faulkner, uh, who's a good friend of mine. I would, though, share some of your concerns, Paul, that this is a political issue, not a legalistic one. And so, yes, of course, we need the right processes in place, but we also need the political leadership to make it very clear that there is no place whatsoever for anti-Semitism or any form of racism. But anti-Semitism is a form of racism that seems to be rife um, at the moment in, in my party, and we need the political leadership to root that out. And do you think if this new EHRC inquiry actually does then turn into a full investigation, do you think heads should roll that people within, not just, I mean, obviously politicians, they can be forced to resign, but what about if there are any staff that have been seen to have sort of breached the law, do you think they should pay for it as well? Well, I, I think that the ultimately this should, you know, sit in the hands of the elected leadership um, of, of the party and the general secretary um, as well. And I'm sure that many staff in the Labour Party also, you know, feel frustrated that this goes on and on. And sometimes they are blamed uh, uh, for this. Uh, but I, I think that it's a political issue that, that needs to be dealt with from the, the top of the party. And, you know, elected politicians have to take responsibility for what is happening in, in their party. And, uh, and, and, and I would like to have more leadership from that, from the top of my party. Uh, it's not just Labour having problems with racism, depressingly. Um, the Tories are in hot water over Islamophobia this week as well. Um, Rachel Wearmouth, you've been speaking to Baroness Varsi about this, who's the first female Muslim cabinet minister, is that right? And Yes, and yeah. she, she was also previously um, a chair of, chair of the Conservative Party, so she had a, um, a, a role in, in some party management as well. Um, she, yeah, she's ex- extremely concerned about um, Islamoph- complaints about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Um, she's particularly concerned about the process, which she, she calls opaque, so it's not clear exactly how, how it works, and she's been unable to get answers on it. Um, a number of cases have come to the surface in the last uh, last few weeks, um, and she says she's kind of taken the party to, to trial by Twitter. So she's sharing a lot of um, posts that she's seen from party members, and she says it's only then that she's able to find out that there's been a suspension or that somebody's been kicked out. And um, some, one of the really striking things that she said in her interview with us was that she, she cannot, in her words, in all conscience, um, ask young Muslims to be a member of the Conservative Party at the moment, which I think is a pretty shocking thing to say from, from a former chair of the party who is herself a Muslim. I mean, for everyone, really. I mean, how have we got ourselves into this situation where both main parties are having serious sort of racism I think one of the problems is um, obviously there's always been a there may always be a, a section of society who are racist okay um, the big problem is it's amplified massively in the social media age and the online age and previously the green ink brigade I used to call them when I was on a local paper you know they were writing to the local paper and you'd ignore them but now they don't write into the local paper they 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 go onto Twitter and then they're amplified by friends and then it, it before you know it some person who's got 10 followers is seen by hundreds of thousands of people I think that's part of the problem I think the tech companies really really need to get a grip of it and we could come on to that 
whole issue about particularly about women coming under um, particularly vicious online abuse um, but I don't personally think there's any reason why you shouldn't have to provide some kind of electronic ID if you want to be on a Twitter, for example. Um, again, when I was on a local paper, we used to always say, name and address supplied. If anyone wanted to write in anonymously on a letters page on the local paper, when I, was, when I was a cub reporter, name and address supplied. And you had to provide your name and address, and we could check it in the electoral roll, and you were legit. That's fine. You, for some reason, you didn't want to give your name, but that's fine. We check you out. That doesn't happen on Twitter. You get eggs, <laughs> eggs throwing eggs on abuse, and it's really vile stuff. Um, and, you know, I get bits of it, but people like Rachel and MPs get it all the time, and, and you know, Luciana Berger is a clear example of that. You know, and then it turns into threats of violence. And we saw this week, you know, BuzzFeed had a fantastic story about the sheer amount of um, police protection and incidents that the police have logged in Parliament. So it's a serious business. And I, I think the tech companies have got a lot of responsibility. I really do. I mean, Rachel. Um, I was going to say there's kind of like a really old saying, isn't it, that, that men are scared of being laughed at and women are scared of being killed. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of. Yeah, it's very, very, very different for for women. I think. Yeah, and I think I think it has an impact on the things that are raised in Parliament as well. I know. I know with the Brexit debate, the, the vast majority of um, MPs that spoke about it were, were men. It was something like ninety percent of the contributions when we looked at it last year. I mean, even though if there's to be another wave of austerity, we know from the last wave that women were disproportionately affected. But um, but a lot of female MPs don't seem to be speaking about it enough in, in Parliament. Is there, do you feel like the, the current atmosphere is contributing to that? I certainly think that women get a disproportionate amount of the um, the abuse, and I would agree with Paul that um, social media companies need to do um, much more to take down um, misogynistic, racist, uh, violent uh, posts on all forms of social uh, media. Uh, the Prime Minister, uh, I interviewed her for my, my book about women in politics, and she said that you used to have the man at the end of the bar sort of muttering into his pint, and now that man is uh, posting on Twitter, and whereas maybe you know one other guy in the bar might, bar might listen to him before, he now finds, as Paul says, a following on social media. and people with you know all sorts of outlandish uh, uh, views uh, come together and, and think that they are um, have a coherent argument uh, whereas before you know people just ignored them and yeah. you know perhaps laughed at them or, or or mainly just ignored them so I think that there is an, an issue with 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 social media I think that you know not just in the UK but politics has become very divisive in the last few years with Brexit, with the rise of the far right and the, uh, the, the hard left. And it's not just a UK um, phenomenon, but there lo there's a lot of um, othering of, of people. So you know, I might disagree with what the Tories uh, uh, do, but, you know, the sort of the language of um, uh, evil or, you know, rather they would, you know, no such you know, the only good Tories are dead Tory, or things like that. That sort of language is sort of lazy, but also perhaps dangerous because we see that what happens on social media often spills out into the real world. And I think people have to be very careful about the language they choose to uh, choose to use because, you know, just two and a half years ago, one of my colleagues was murdered, uh, but also there's been death threats against many other Labour MPs, um, Rosie Cooper 
in Lancashire, obviously what's happened to Luciana Berger, the way that Anna Subaru was treated just outside Parliament, you know, totally and utterly unacceptable. But it is, even though you say, Rachel, that women don't talk about Brexit as much as men, although you know, Yvette Cooper on the Labour benches has been absolutely fantastic, I think, in the area of, of Brexit and putting forward uh, an, an alternative. But it, it, even if women are speaking out less than men, women are getting a disproportionate amount of the abuse compared with, with men. And I think there is this thing about people, some people still find it hard to deal with the fact that women have got opinions uh, and want to shout them down. And the point of you know, what Jess Phillips describes as uh, dogpiling on, on, on Twitter or isolating um, um, people on Twitter. So by isolating, you're, um, you're, you're attacking people who are supporting someone so that they don't support the person anymore. And the dogpiling is all coming in all at once on, on someone. And you're, you're trying to silence that person because you're, you're trying to get them to think, do you know what, I can't be bothered. I'm not going to say that because I'm just going to get a load of grief and reply. And we all we all get that, you know. Mm. Uh, what is the point in speaking out? You don't want to spend your whole weekend having to read loads of nasty stuff about you on social media. And so the easiest thing is just not to say it. Yeah. But then the people who win are the people who are doing this. And again, when I spoke to Diane Abbott and I think Roshanara Ali um, for my book, they said they worry sometimes when people come and do work experience or uh, work for them in their offices that they come in all sort of, you know, bright-eyed and excited about politics and maybe thinking it's what they would like to do in the future. And if they look at their social media feeds, at the end of that you know, two weeks or whatever, they might think, actually, I couldn't put up with that, so I don't think that politics is, is for me. So, again, you are you know, discouraging, potentially, the next generation of people coming forward. And, 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 and as a young woman, and you see the, 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 so much of the abuse is targeted at women, I think there's a lot of people who would think, is that for me now, I think yes. You know, we absolutely need more uh, women in, in politics. It is an incredibly worthwhile job. You feel you're making a difference with the sort of scale of the challenges we face at the moment as a country and the enormity of the decisions we make. I would encourage people to go into politics and get involved. But I could also totally understand that people, you know, maybe want a quieter life and don't want to subject themselves to what they see. People like Anna Subri or Luciana Berger or Diane Abbott and others having to endure. It's, nope. it's a good point, actually, about Yvette Cooper you just made, because Yvette's been instrumental in many ways, you might say. I mean, if next week, for example, there is a delay in Article 50, then Yvette Cooper will take lots and lots of the credit. She's made a massive difference on that. She's forced the government's hand. And yet Yvette Cooper, no one talks about it for, for obvious reasons, but she had to admit, uh, local constituents had to admit, only a couple of weeks ago, she had a death threat and a guy was arrested. That's Yvette Cooper. We don't know what that was for, but it just goes to show a high-profile female MP you know, put her neck on the line in the national interest, in the public interest to try and fix Brexit, and what do they get? So it's kind of worrying, but I'm glad we touched on this Islamophobia thing because, you know, it is, it is really important not to have some sort of whataboutry about somehow, you know, equality of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia as if there's some kind of arms race and who's worse than the other. But it's really important to remember that actually um, it is... A, a, a strain, a sort of a virus in society, Islamophobia, and it's having a, a real impact on a lot of communities. Um, now we've touched on it already. We, we've naturally come on to talking about your book, Rachel. I knew which is the next section. <laughs> no, no, it's, I mean obviously very timely. So <coughs> tomorrow is International Women's Day, and Rachel Reeves, you've written a book on women in politics to coincide. Well, released to coincide with the day, I, I assume. 
Um, here's a clip of Theresa May praising the women of Westminster book at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday. First of all, I'd like to join the right honourable gentleman in congratulating the honourable member for Liverpool Wavertree on the birth of her son. We're, we're uh, all pleased to hear that that has gone well. Can I also say, in relation to International Women's Day, that I'm very pleased that today marks the launch of the book by his uh, honourable friend, the member for Leeds West, of Women of Westminster, uh, Women Who Changed Politics. I hope that book will be an inspiration to other women to come into politics and see a career in this, uh, in this house. And can I also congratulate the England women's football team, who last night won the She Believes Cup defeating Japan in uh, in doing so. Rachel, can you explain what the book's all about? Uh, so the book is called um, Women of Westminster and it's about the women over the last 100 years since women have been in Parliament, how they have shaped and changed our political discourse and put issues on the agenda that just weren't there before. So it starts with Nancy Astor's election in 1919 and her taking her seat and goes right up to the present day and includes lots of interviews with MPs of past and present including the Prime Minister Theresa May and Harriet Harman, Amber Rudd and Diane Abbott and then also some figures from the past like um, Shirley Williams and Shirley Summerskill, Edwina Curry and Gillian Shepherd. and it's, uh, it's about trying to write back some really remarkable w women back into our political history and also I hope to inspire uh, and we need a bit of inspiration at the moment frankly to try and inspire uh, the next generation of, of, of people to put themselves forwards and knowing that they are standing on the shoulders of some real giants in doing so I think one of the really important things for women is seeing another woman do something that, that you hope one day to do and I know it perhaps was the case for you with Alice Bacon who was um, the, the first female MP to be yeah, Leeds so MP this is where it sort of all came from with me when I was elected in 2010 I was only the second woman to ever be a member of parliament in Leeds and there are eight MPs in my city and the previous one was Alice Bacon who was an MP from 1945 to 1970 so for 40 years between Alice standing down in 1970 and me getting elected in 2010 Leeds was represented by eight white men and I felt that I owed something to Alice Bacon I wanted to find out what issues she championed what barriers she overcame and as I researched Alice I felt that her story was one that needed to be told that more people should have heard of and yet Alice like so many other women have effectively been written out of our political history and I then decided that I wanted to write a few more back in. And so that's where the idea for this book came from. And there's lots of women in there who are household names like uh, Thatcher, Castle, Harmon, May, Diane Abbott, but also some who should be household names that aren't, like uh, Margaret Bonfield, the first woman in the cabinet, Florence Horsborough, the first Conservative uh, cabinet minister, Thelma Kasselik-Keir, who campaigned for equal pay in the 1940s, Eleanor Rathbone, who introduced family allowances, some truly remarkable women, and yet even women in Parliament wouldn't have heard of many of them, let alone the, the wider world. And I think their contributions to issues like the equal guardianship of children, family allowances, child benefit, abortion law reform, um, modern-day slavery, in a huge number of areas. It took women in Parliament to put those issues on the agenda, make them mainstream issues, and change the legislation as well. But also there's a story about how women 
sometimes do politics differently. And right from the early days with the first two women to take their seats, Nancy Astor, a Conservative, and Margaret Wintringham, a, a Liberal, working together to change the law on the guardianship of children before the mid-1920s. Women had no rights at all over their children in the case of separation or divorce. They changed the law for the equal guardianship of uh, children. Um, Ellen Wilkinson, socialist and feminist, worked with the Duchess of Athol, who was a conservative, incredibly posh and anti-suffrage. They worked together with the independent MP Eleanor Rathbone to oppose Chamberlain's appeasement and also draw attention to Franco's uh, fascists and, and, and try and support Spain. So you had, uh, right from the beginning, MPs from uh, hugely different backgrounds with very different political views on most subjects trying to find common cause and working together in the national interest and you see that I think right the way up until today with Stella Creasy's work on uh, abortion law reform in, in Northern Ireland, the work that Harriet Harman and Maria Miller uh, have done on introducing baby leave which came in, in at the end of January uh, this year or the work that Joe Cox started with Seema Kennedy on uh, loneliness so many examples of women coming together trying to find some practical solutions to, to issues and campaigning alongside each other. And um, What was the most surprising thing that came out of your interviews? Well, you know, some people, even though I served with them as MPs for, you know, the best part of a decade, I just didn't know that much about them, including the Prime Minister, Theresa May, who I went to Maidenhead last summer and spent 45 minutes with her in Maidenhead Town Hall just before she was going to do a surgery of her of her own. And we talked about the work she did in the Conservative Party to introduce Women to Win to try and get more Conservative candidates. And so many women in the Conservative Party have talked about how she was a mentor to them and how... Uh, without her they wouldn't have you know, got involved in politics, wouldn't have had those opportunities. Amber Rudd of course was on the uh, the A-list which was an idea from Women to Win and, and, and Theresa May and then she of course became the MP for Hastings and a key member of uh, Theresa May's um, uh, government. Uh, but also Theresa May spoke about the fact that she did politics differently to most of her male colleagues, that she didn't uh, go to the tea rooms and the smoking rooms, she just tried to concentrate on doing a good job. But also this thing that when she was appointed as Home Secretary by David Cameron, there was a lot of uh, sort of what did she know about the Home Office that she was set up, totty set up to fail. <laughs> uh, and yet she'd been an MP for longer than Cameron and Osborne, had much more political experience and life experience uh, than them. But she was the one who was sort of picked on as, you know, she's not going to be, she's not up to this job. And she survived longer than both of, they, both of them have. And Diane Abbott as well. We both sit on the Labour benches, and yet I had really not spoken to her in all the years that I'd been an, an MP. And interviewing her, I felt quite ashamed of that. And she spoke about when she was first elected, first black woman to take a seat in Parliament. She was elected at the same time as Bernie Grant and Paul Boating, first black members of Parliament. And she said that, you know, they kept getting checked, their ID kept getting checked because people didn't believe that they were members of Parliament. Dawn Butler actually as well said when she was elected, I think in 2005, that um, she got mistaken for a being a cleaner. cleaner yeah. I wouldn't happen to a white man. Uh, so there's still the sort of prejudices and the assumptions about what an MP uh, looks like. But also Diane Abbott spoke about, as did Harriet Harman and Anne Taylor and Helen Heyman, the first woman to have a baby whilst an MP, all spoke about this sort of constant conflict about wanting to be a good MP and wanting to be a good mother and worrying that it wasn't possible to do both. And Harriet Harman and Anne Taylor both said, you know, it had to be possible. I had to make it 
work but sometimes it felt like it just wasn't possible. Apparently Tessa Jowell um, used to stay up through the night, two nights a week, to try and do everything that she thought all the men MPs were doing. They probably weren't doing all the things she thought they were doing. Uh, but this feeling that, you know, you've, you've, you've made a decision to be an MP, you've also become a mother, and you've got to make sure that you are, you know, doing everything that the men are doing, and, and so as a result, over overcompensating. So I really, really enjoyed the interviews, and I think it brings the story to life, that it's people's own experiences, and Shirley Summerskill as well, who's now about 90 years old, and her mum was an MP before her, Edith Summerskill. And uh, when Shirley was at university, Edith Summerskill used to write to her every other night from the House of Commons. And, uh, and the book was that later published, Letters to My Daughter. And I think that's what encouraged Shirley um, Summerskill to become a GP like her mum and then to become an MP. But Shirley Summerskill spoke about... Uh, she was... This is just quite a funny story, I think. She was walking down... Well, and awful. She was walking down the corridor in the House of Commons and I interviewed her just when all the stuff about sexual harassment was happening. And she said to me... You know, something similar happened to me, actually, Rachel. Uh, I said, oh, goodness. Um, she said, I was walking down the corridor and an MP came up to me and he stroked my hair. And I said, um, you know, excuse me, I, I, don't, I don't like you doing that. And the MP said to me, oh, it's just a, a sign of friendship. And I said, well, do you stroke Harold Wilson's hair? <laughs> uh, and she said, no, I, I, my understanding, Rachel, is that I should report this sort of thing to the chief whip. Is, is that right? And I said, yes, yes, I, I guess so, Shirley. She said, problem is, Rachel, it was the chief whip. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, a, a great story, but also a sort of sad story yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you know, all these years in Parliament and the way that men and women were perhaps treated differently and still to some extent today. And I think that the, the social media and the abuse is the sort of latest incarnation of the different ways that women and men are treated in politics. And we need to change that if we want to achieve real equality in, in politics and more widely as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, you've heard all about all these other stories must have made you think about your own story. Is, is, is there anything, you know, if you were writing your own chapter in that book, you might want to put in? Is that a bit of a strange question? Uh, well, no, I mean, I speak a little bit about my own experience. I've had two children since becoming a member of Parliament. I had both of those when I was in the shadow cabinet. Uh, there was a Conservative MP, Andrew Rosendale, uh, who said that Ed Miliband shouldn't put me in his cabinet if... Um, if, if he became Prime Minister uh, because I wouldn't be able to concentrate on being a, um, a new mum and a Cabinet Minister at the same time. Uh, and I think that David Cameron, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair all became new fathers when they were Prime Ministers and I don't remember anyone saying that they should stand down from frontline duties because, you know, having screaming children and changing nappies was incompatible with holding high office and yet it seems that there's one rule for men and another rule for, for women. So I still think that some of those assumptions are still, unfortunately, um, rife uh, today in, in, in politics and in wider society as well. And, you know, we need to, need to change those sorts of attitudes if we want women to play a full role in public life. Right, we better move on. Uh, it's now time for the quiz, which is on women in politics. Ooh. Oh, I'd better do all right in this, hadn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to get out of the UK... Oh, oh no. there is one UK-based question because otherwise Rachel Reeves would would sweep the board. Would sweep the yeah, board. Well, that would Definitely. be all right. Be By the way, that. we should say what's the publisher of the book? And uh, it's um, it's the publisher is Ib Taurus. Uh, it's called um, 
you can't see it, but uh, Women of Westminster, the MPs who changed uh, politics, got a forward by Mary Beard, and it's out now. Brilliant. Sorry. That's Before all right. we need to get that plug in. Always a pro, Paul. <laughs> Always a pro. Um, I know last week you did Fastest Finger. We yeah, used to do Answers in Turn. What, yeah. what do you prefer? What do you I'm, prefer I'm easy. Um, you know. We do fastest buzzer. Let's just see how it develops. Yeah, free form. <laughs> um, are we going to have to shout Reeves and Weirmouth? Is that? Oh, let's do. Yeah, let's do that then. Yeah, you have to shout your name, like and you can't shout Rachel. Oh. Uh, no, you don't have to do that. Uh, <laughs> and only unless you want to. That's fine. Um, so, question number one: Who was the world's first woman prime minister? God, that's a good question. Was it a Bangladeshi PM before? I'm going to go for a Bangladeshi PM, but I can't remember what her name was. I've no idea. It's a bit lame, Reeves. isn't it? Rachel Weirman. Pass. You're sort of geographically close. Do you want to God. continue guessing? Ooh. Well, no, I'll just no, tell you. Um, it was a Sri Lankan PM. Uh. I'm going to. I'm not. I apologies for pronunciation. I don't know what. Um, it's Sirimavo Bandaranaike oh. was elected in July 1960. London's Evening News wrote at the time that there will be need for a new word. That's to describe her. Presumably we shall have to call her a stateswoman. <laughs> Strange. Presumably. Uh, <laughs> question number two. Um, how many women are in the UK cabinet currently and can you name them all? I'll, I'll have a go at naming them all. Rachel Reeves. Uh, <laughs> uh, Theresa May, Amber Rudd, Liz Truss, Karen Bradley... As far as we know at the moment. Yes. Leader of the House. Oh, Andrea Ledsom. Thank you very much. Who else have I forgotten? Is that it? That's five. Oh, Claire Parry attends cabinet. We're including attends. Okay. Are there? Ooh, who else attends? Does um, this thingy attend? Um, uh, Caroline Noakes. Does yeah. she? Yeah, I think okay, she Okay, that's yeah. seven. Yeah. Uh, oh, I can't think of any more. Is there someone we've... Awful, oh, ah, Baroness Evans. Yeah. Leader of the Lords. Yeah. And... That's not a lot, is it? A penny mordant. Yes. Yeah. Well done, well guys. Well done, Rachel. <laughs> well done. Nine. Yeah, very good. Well done. Uh, Thanks, Paul, for a bit of help there. <laughs> <laughs> Final question. Um, which were the last countries, last two countries in Europe to grant women the vote, and when? Spain. Greece. I don't know, was it Eastern European one? Poland? Let's go right. for... Portugal? I don't know, I don't know. Uh, Lithuania. Do you want the answers? Yeah. It's quite shocking, actually. Go on. Switzerland, Switzerland. in 1971. Whoa. But they're not in the European Union. Oh, no. <laughs> I said in Europe. Okay, all right. Uh, we're leaving the EU, but we're not <laughs> leaving Europe, Rachel. <laughs> oh, yes, they're, they're, they're in EFTA, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Switzerland, wow. Um, and Liechtenstein in 1984. 1984? I think they had three or four referendums in which giving women the vote was rejected. I don't know if they By had By men, the presumably. <laughs> presumably, yeah. Um, I haven't looked into the detail. That um, is amazing. Yeah. 84. 84. That's quite a fact. Yeah. Mind you, here's another great fact. Rachel probably knows this. Women in the Foreign Office until 1979, I think. I think it's... Ni- the it's marriage bar. Yeah. yeah. Were, I could not work in the Foreign Office when, as soon as they got married. They had to leave. Yeah. <laughs> it's what, 1979. Why? Isn't that incredible? Well, simply they wouldn't Bizarre. be able to concentrate on 
doing their jobs yeah. and also looking after their husbands. But why the Foreign Office specifically? Why don't, other white it might have been other white law, I don't know, but that's yeah. the one I remember. Well, all of them had it until... Yeah, maybe, yeah. Really? maybe it's a whole white law. For, for a long time, yeah. maybe not all the way up until 1979. Yeah. But the marriage bar existed in lots of professions. Incredible, isn't it? Shocking. Ridiculous. See, um, they're millennials, you see. They don't get this. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in 86. Does that make <laughs> so me Yeah. Probably does. I'm just ancient, children, <laughs> 60s. I do remember the pre-internet. Anyway, we're, we're going off way, way <laughs> off the tangent. That is definitely all we've got time for. Um, and we're going to leave you with Attorney General Jeffrey Cox um, discussing the contents of his cod piece. It is government policy to achieve the necessary change in the backstop which will cause me to review and change my advice. Uh, that is government policy. That is the discussions that we're having. I would say, Mr Speaker, it's, been come, it's come to be called Cox's Codpiece. What I am concerned to ensure is that what's inside the codpiece is in full working order. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.